This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to the Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be talking to designer Jake Arnold about his new book, Redefining Comfort. But first, we're going to catch up on the news, including the sudden closure of a North Carolina manufacturer, a new award for up-and-coming designers, and a look at how microtrends are changing the design industry. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Homes executive editor, Fred Nicolaus. Hi, Fred. Hi, Dennis. How's it going? Great. How you doing? I'm doing good. Last week, uh, <laughs> my body was back from vacation. <laughs> this week, my mind is back as well. It's good to be back. <laughs> it's great to have the whole package back, Fred. I'm <laughs> exactly. so glad. Exactly. And we uh, we started this, uh, this new chapter for me off with a great Monday uh, episode with Alex Shuford of Rockhouse Farm. It's hard to even pick one takeaway. That that whole thing was just a takeaway monster. A fan favorite, that Alex Shuford, and for good reason. I think people want to listen to it for a host of reasons, but my favorite takeaway is the whole discussion about designers and their ever-increasing impact on the entire industry, really. Yeah, completely. You know, Alex comes from sort of the high point uh, manufacturer world, uh, but he was very clear that the future of the industry is based around designers. And I don't think he was just buttering us up. Uh, <laughs> I think I feel like I talk to high point people and they're all like, yeah, that whole designer thing is really important. How does that work? So if this is a, a refrain I hear often. But uh, the episode is, is just fantastic. If you, if you want to get an overview of the home industry, Alex just really wraps it up in a package really comprehensively around where we're at. It's it's, uh, you know, every week is a must listen, of course, but this is a, a particularly must listen, he must listen. I couldn't agree more, especially since the last time we spoke with Alex was really in the depths of COVID and lots of crazy things going on. It was so great to have a, here's where we are now and here's what I see in the future. So this was a, this was a really special one. And I thank Alex again for his time. All right. We're going to get to the news in just a moment, but first a quick break. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the Editor-in-Chief of Business of Home, and I'm so glad you're here. Our team works tirelessly to bring you the industry news you need to know. We're also talking about what it feels like to run a design firm, and you can find those conversations on my podcast, Trade Tales, which features heart-to-hearts with designers getting real about the challenges of creative entrepreneurship. The show is proof that there's no one right way to grow your business. Some weeks, the focus is on improving systems and processes. Others, it's about how sometimes getting out of your own way is what it truly takes to spring ahead. No matter the topic, we're taking a close look at how to build a better design business. And I hope you'll join us. Tune in to Trade Tales every other Wednesday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And we're back. We just wanted to close the loop on a story we talked about last week about yellow trucking. Fred, it sounds like what we thought might happen last week is what's happened. Exactly. Yeah, we we talked about this last week, but Yellow, the sort of enormous uh, trucking company, uh, laid off abruptly 30,000 employees. And uh, it seemed like the company was on the verge of Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, not a ton of new information came out. We found out that they owed a lot of money to Home Depot and Amazon and Bed Bath and Beyond. 
most of what I'm seeing is that the rest of the industry, which is actually pretty healthy, will be able to pick up the slack. Um, but if you do business with yellow, now is certainly a time to, to get on the phone and, and figure it out because we will see at least some repercussions from this over the next few weeks, uh, if not months. Absolutely. It certainly sounds like a lot of the drivers are going to be absorbed by other companies. And so that part of it, at, at least we will see a fairly quick resolution. Unfortunately, uh, another story that we've got to get into is Klossner, which is a North Carolina-based manufacturer that abruptly ceased operations and shut down its facilities. Fred, what have we learned? Yeah, well, this this is definitely big news. It, you know, this is not a company that maybe is on the radar of most designers, but it's a, it's a big manufacturer that sells to a lot of retailers like your Raymore and Flanagan's. And certainly they did a lot of business through Wayfair. Um, there were rumors in the industry that they were having problems, but I don't think anyone quite thought that they would shut down overnight and lay off a thousand employees, which is what unfortunately has happened. It was interesting because it was very reminiscent of what happened last Thanksgiving when Lane Furniture basically yeah. did right did the yeah. same thing and it was just a, the employees were just sent a note saying don't bother to come in we're, we've, we've shut down it, uh, it it's, it's a little bit spooky yes I mean I think what a lot of people are what a lot of these businesses are doing right is that they're you know they have a line of credit with a bank and it gets extended and extended and extended and then the bank says you know what this isn't going in the right direction we're going to pull it and that creates this very sudden shutdown of uh, you know, presumably functional manufacturing business. You know, this is a big company with like a long history, and I don't want to overly simplify it, but you know, they were sort of at the lower end of the price point spectrum. You know, they're they're selling to retailers, and I think that there's a big consensus in the industry that that has been hurt the most by the end of the home boom. I remember being at High Point several markets ago. And multiple people were explaining to me, so what's going to happen, Dennis, is the low end (laughs) is going to suffer the most immediately. They've got too much inventory. They can't sell. And being the low-cost provider, which was the exact situation that Yellow Trucking was in that we were talking about earlier— there's very little margin, and they, unfortunately, in the case of Klausner, they they took on a lot of debt. They they restructured. They let a lot of people go. There were there were a lot of issues, but it sounded like the biggest buildup in inventory and the biggest struggles were going to come at this sort of lower tier, the Raymore and Flanagan type companies like you talked about. And sure enough, that's the situation that Lane was in. That's the situation that Klausner was in. And everyone that I talk to, and you tell me what people are telling you, says, unfortunately, there's probably more of this to to come. I don't think the average designer is going to feel the impact of this. This is not, you know, this is not a designer brand. Um, And I think the brands that we're going to see go under in the months ahead are also probably not going to be designer brands. So it's not exactly good news, but I don't think this is going to, you know, cause an earthquake at the D&D building. But it is something that, you know, affects the entire ecosystem. And certainly when a thousand people lose their jobs, it's, it's, you know, it's unfortunate. It's not good news. Well, exactly. And and it always just feels like a bit of a black eye for the industry and, and nobody likes that. Yeah. So that that's also part of the challenge. Moving on to some happier news, uh, a, a new award that sounds like it's going to be given out in the design industry, Fred? Sure. Yeah. Well, the excellently named Frederick magazine, uh, the, the design uh, publication uh, started by Fabric House Schumacher has this uh, new industry honors list, but it's not like the A-list or the 8100. This one is for up and coming designers, not just more awards for Bunny Williams. Uh, there's 13 in all. And the kind of cool twist of it is that 
every designer who wins this award, they're calling it the it list, gets uh, $10,000 uh, as part of the award. Pretty cool. I know. I love this. So yeah. so what? So it's it's 13 designers and and they get $10,000 sort of cash to do whatever they want with? Is that is that the upshot? That's my understanding. And they also get uh, an all expenses paid trip to, uh, <laughs> no, I, there's a dinner and I think they, they get flown in for that as well in, in New York. So uh, but yeah, I, th- I just thought this was really cool and interesting. You know, I mean, I, it's a very classic play for a publication to launch an honors list. I feel like any new publication that starts up, the first thing you do is like top 50, top 100. And the reason why they do it is that it's sort of mutually beneficial, right? It's like the designer gets an award. They post about it on social media. So the publication gets some press for it and the designer gets an award, which is great. It works for everybody. Uh, but of course, implicit in that is that you're giving the award to someone who has a big audience. And so it's kind of cool to to give the award to people who don't have as big of an audience as your uh, as your Mark Sykes's and your Bunny Williams's. I remember when they bought or they created Freddie, and it was going to be about supporting younger, more up and coming designers. Is your is your sense that this is part of that effort to try and and support? perhaps lesser known designers in general. Yeah. And Freddie, of course, was sort of the, the bones of the, the defunct home polish is what, which was, yes. I wish we had the Thursday show at the time. That would have been a juicy episode. <laughs> um, but yes. Uh, yeah. That's my sense of it. You know, when you talk to uh, Schumacher CEO, Timur Yumusaklar about this, he's, he seems very serious about, we need to support the next generation of young designers. And, you know, it's easy to be cynical about this stuff and be like, okay, yeah, they're coming out awards, la di da, you know, but I, they're putting their money where their mouth is and giving these people, I mean, because $10,000 wouldn't mean that much to, to Bunny Williams necessarily, but it means a lot to a younger designer who's kind of getting their firm together. And I do think this helps, you know, sort of support the next generation of, you know, of course, Schumacher's customers, which they need to spec their product. So it makes sense to me. Well, it's interesting because I feel like you and I have been talking so much recently about what the industry is trying to do in various ways to support this next generation or to encourage this next generation to become customers. And so I feel like this is actually a wonderful way to to highlight some some young people and and maybe m- make a really meaningful impact on the future of their career. I mean as you say, that that bit of money can can really make a difference when you're just getting started. Yeah, completely. And I do think, uh, you know, this also speaks a little bit to Schumacher's seriousness around Frederick, the magazine. I mean, to be clear, they don't even like when you say that it's connected to Schumacher. They want it to very much be an independent publication and they're treating it as such. Uh, so, so they want this to be like a serious media player, and I, th- I think it is largely. I don't think uh, the design industry sees it as just a vehicle for, you know, Schumacher's uh, brand goals. And I think having something like this, you know, gets it out there more. It's good for everybody involved. I don't know. It's I don't want to just sing uh, uh, Frederick's praise to high heavens here, but I do think this is very cool, and I'm. Uh, Oh, maybe this is just angling for me to get an invite to the party. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> if anyone's listening who has uh, access to the list, let me know. But yeah, it's cool. You know you can't qualify for the $10,000 award. Though, right? <laughs> I don't know. I might Every sneak in there right? a little bit, you okay. know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, moving on, let's let's make our way over to Asia now for uh, for an article from the Wall Street Journal that was talking about the era of 
ultra cheap stuff being under threat. And it, it sounds like factories in Asia are having a hard time getting more young people to come work for them. Gee, where have I heard that story before, Fred? <laughs> uh, on Monday's show with Alex Schufert, <laughs> we're going to just talk about it endlessly. Yes, this is interesting because it mirrors the same problem we have here in, in the design industry is that there's so few young people who want to enter a skilled trades. And so you have this uh, huge hole in the labor market. And, you know, we've become so used to this idea that Asia is just the manufacturing powerhouse of the world. It's always going to be that way. And we can always get a TV for 50 cents or whatever it is. And and uh, the manufacturing industry listed China out of poverty and they've created this huge middle class. And surprise, surprise, those kids don't want to work in a factory. You know, it's uh, it makes all the sense in the world. And not only do they not want to work in a factory, but guess what they do want to do? That's right. They want to be an influencer on Instagram. I don't, I don't know. know. Fred doesn't believe that. Well, though. he doesn't think that that's really what's going on, right? No. Well, it is It is the classic, no offense to all our boomer listeners, but it is the classic boomer thing of like, kids don't want to work. They just want to go on TikTok these days. And there are certainly some young people who want to do that. But, you know, as the article pointed out, you know, there was this one young woman who didn't like working in a factory and she became, you know, she provided care to elderly patients and so it's not it's not just everyone wants to be famous i think there's a, there's a little bit of that but i don't think that's really what's driving this no i i just thought that was such a funny quote right, from course, the article yeah, yeah. that once they saw the kardashians yes. they never wanted to come back to the factory yeah. really of course of course they don't want to work in the factory if they've got other options unfortunately what we're seeing so much in china is they don't have a lot of other options, true, which is true. why the unemployment rate is so high among young people. And that's the much bigger conundrum of, of what are we going to do? Well, I mean, I think, you know, what probably will happen is that wages will go up in these factories and then subsequently more people will come back to work and that will make consumer goods in the U.S. more expensive. Just to get a silver lining out of this, I wonder if so much of, you know, this growth of cheap consumer goods has created this culture of fast fashion and fast furniture and cheap stuff that we all bemoan in the design industry. And maybe, you know, although like, look, rising prices is not like a headline to, to trumpet, I, maybe this will create more of an emphasis on stuff that lasts longer and, you know, domestically made. Maybe there's maybe there's a good takeaway from this. Maybe it's going to have an impact on the dupes, Fred. The dupes, Ma- yes. right? Your new favorite the, uh, the du- bad guy here. Well, I, what, what's interesting is that that's one of the concerns about the dupes, right? Is that they're all just these cheap things coming out of Asia, and uh, and I I totally get that. I I think it's just it's interesting that clearly around the world we have a problem bringing young people along into into manufacturing in in general and i think as you referenced alex made a great point that we didn't market the job properly over the last decade and so we lost a whole generation of people who didn't think it was a good job to come and and work in a factory and what that's going to mean for all these furniture companies that are manufacturing in Asia. Listen, I, I mean, a former guest of the show, the CEO of LoveSack, who apparently is yes. uh, is having a hard time over there, right? He's he's planning to bring the, the manufacturing back home to North Carolina. So we'll 
So we'll see if there's enough people to make the giant beanbag furniture that he makes in uh, in, in North Carolina. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's like just globalization creates this weird game of musical chairs where it's like, where's the cheap labor next? Can we go there? And maybe it's in North Carolina. Maybe it's in Mexico. Maybe it's in Vietnam. And, you know, I, I think, you know, at least from what I've been reading about this and what the, you know, the writer of the Wall Street Journal article said is just essentially there's only so much of that shuffling you can do and we're going to see higher prices. And I actually don't think that's a terrible thing, really. No, I, I agree. And I honestly think it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the companions to the end of this zero interest rates and, it's, and, and all yeah. this free money. I think, it's, I think it's very related. And I think it's part of, unfortunately, the inflation reality that's going to be rolling for some time. And, and we're going to have to see how everybody adjusts to that. Completely. And I think just to add one more thing, you know, you said who wants to work in a factory? I mean, I think there's working in a factory and there's working in a factory. You know, there's there's being a highly skilled artisan who makes beautiful furniture and you can take pride in your work and create a piece that's maybe more expensive, but lasts a long time. And then there's just kind of being, you know, grinding out like endless repetitive dupes as we as we seem to like to say on the Thursday show now. Uh, so, no, no. So, and, I mean, so I think and, and that was honestly my point. Yeah. My point was that I think people had the perception that working in a factory was just putting iPhones together all day yeah. instead of, I mean, as Alex talks about, you know, you can you can really be a, a skilled artisan who who honestly has to work for years just to even learn how to how to make a sofa properly. And, and that can be highly rewarding and, and remunerative. Completely. So hopefully this will create more jobs like that. Yes, exactly. So moving on, we're going to talk about micro trends, Fred, <laughs> and you're really going to have some explaining to do about this. So uh, take it away. Your favorite subject. <laughs> yeah. So last week, uh, Caroline Burke wrote a story for Business of Home about uh, the, this phenomenon of micro trends. Um, Things like Barbie core or coastal grandma or my personal favorite tomato girl summer, which I actually got pitched uh, this morning, uh, a new one called lemon girl summer, which is, I guess, a cousin to tomato girl summer. Um, but they're these little sort of like mini trends, little trendlets. They're like basically hashtags that take over TikTok for a few weeks and then sort of seemingly disappear after, you know, editors get 500,000 uh, pitch emails uh, in, the, in their inboxes. You, you seem micro trend skeptical, but they, they are a real thing. What's your wh where does the skepticism come from, Dennis? Well, when you say they're a real thing, yes. what does that mean? They really exist. Um, <laughs> they exist on TikTok. I get so my skepticism. Yeah. Or listen, I'm always worried that we're going to send some message that furniture makers should be shifting gears and they should be creating all of this new product around Tomato Girl Summer or <laughs> the new lemon zest pitch that yeah. you just got. Yeah. Right. So that that's what I I worry about. I don't want people jumping from one hot trend to another. From a manufacturing perspective, it's it's almost impossible to to keep up with. Yeah, right? I mean, shifting gears—you could not shift gears fast enough to, to accommodate exactly. these things because they disappear in three weeks. I mean, right. I I think what Caroline's story, you know, so eloquently uh, laid out is that these trends do happen almost solely on TikTok, but they get transferred into the industry in kind of an interesting way, which is that because a platform like Etsy, where you have all these makers who can just whip up a quick candle that looks, you know, that fits into a, a little trend quickly, 
you know, they start to see what's trending. They start, you know, shifting their inventory towards the trend and, you know, they can see, you know, a boom. And yeah, look, like Century Furniture is not going to be making like Barbie core sofas tomorrow or anything like that. What they largely do is they just market around these trends. They take their existing inventory that fits into the trend and use it as an excuse to send me an email. But uh, <laughs> there is a commercial reality to it, but it's mostly happening on Etsy and the rest of it is just sort of bubbling around in the margins. Well, and and that's why, again, when all of these companies are trying to figure out what, how should they be keeping their finger on the pulse of what is coming up next with a with a younger generation, a customer they all know they want to be thoughtful about, should they should they pay a lot of attention to these micro trends? Do these micro trends reveal something about how this customer wants to be serviced? I'm wondering what companies should do with this with this knowledge. Well, I think micro trends themselves are sort of interesting because we're at this weird time where it's almost impossible to say what's hot right now. Like you could say, oh, minimalism is really big and find 5 million posts on Instagram that prove that point. You could say maximalism is making a comeback and find the same 500 million posts that make the same point. You know, we're in this big cultural stew where everything is happening all at once. And so you almost need these like hyper specific little digestible cute ideas to sort of break through the noise of everything that's going on. And so I do think the next generation will be trained on that understanding of aesthetics and niche. You know, it's not enough for them to be like, oh, French countryside. They need like French goth countryside fairy core. Like, you know, (laughs) because they've been raised on, you know, uh, things like Pinterest and Instagram, you know, they need the stronger drug. And so I think understanding the way the ecosystem works is is only helpful. Now, are you going to, you know, you know, interrupt your manufacturing to chase these trends. No, of course not. But I do think that like furniture companies always struggle with the reality that like customers only need their product once every seven years. And it's difficult to remind people you exist every month, every year. And so if you're responding to what's happening in the culture, even through marketing, even if you kind of know it's a joke and the person who's getting it knows it's a joke, I don't, I think there's every reason to stay abreast of them and understand them because it, it is training the next generation of consumers. No, to be sure. And and again, I'm I'm curious about how it lands for designers. There, there's a designer that I'm interviewing actually tomorrow who who had a recent post on his Instagram saying, I understand this is uh, Tomato Girl Summer and I want to show you this project that I've got. And uh, and he did a great job of sort of incorporating the, the big takeaways from it. So, I mean, again, I think there's this desire to look as if you are current and relevant and that you you understand the language of the moment but uh, and, and you know and I was trying to have this conversation and I don't want to give away into my conversation with Jake Arnold but but Jake works with a, with a lot of young artists and and musicians and and the the like and I'm always curious as to what what direction he's getting from them what they what they want and I and so again for the industry as a whole I I really do want to understand what the takeaway should be from these microtrends. Because I think it's, I do think it's really interesting. And I think there are elements of it that, that have a, a meaningful legs to them and, and that last even longer than just these videos appear on TikTok. I mean, look, I, I agree with you. These are sort of silly trends and it feels it feels embarrassing even sometimes to talk about them as someone who's on the wrong side of 40. But it's exactly what the designer that you interviewed did. It's He's not saying, oh, I'm obsessed with Tomato Girl Summer. I totally understand it. You know, sign me up. You know, it's more just like, hey, here's an excuse to show you an image because there are a precious few of them in this industry. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, 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 understood. And I, and I think that's a really great uh, point. All right, that's it for the news, but there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com, including business advice from Sean Lowe about the consequences of taking on small projects and a roundup of the latest showroom openings. We're going to get to my interview with Jake in just a minute, but first, a quick break. Hi, it's Caitlin again. Are you ready to build a better design business? Join hundreds of design professionals in Business of Home's membership community, BOH Insider, to access exclusive reporting and industry analysis that will keep you competitive and connected as you grow your firm. Membership includes complimentary access to weekly educational workshops with industry experts, a subscription to BOH Magazine, and a directory of skilled trades across the country. Insiders also get discounts on BOH's industry-leading job board, which is especially helpful when you're ready to expand your team. And later this year, insiders will begin to receive exclusive invitations to private field trips to unique destinations that unlock creativity and community. Learn more and join us today at businessofhome.com slash BOH Insider. My guest today is interior designer and man of the moment, Jake Arnold. Jake, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Dennis, honestly, thanks for your intros. I feel like I need to speak to you every day to get the pep in my step <laughs> from you. Well, I can't imagine how you are juggling everything that is going on for you at the moment. I have in my hot little hands, not everybody has it, I understand, but your beautiful new book, that is coming out. When is it actually coming out to the public? It's coming out in September and I need to get the exact date. I should have it right in front of me, <laughs> but I, it's the first week of September. I love that the cover has an indoor tree and I feel like uh, John Legend uh, talked about the the beautiful indoor tree that you did in their home. I, I, I like this. It took a long time to really choose the right image for the cover because I think the idea of having to find something that represents what comfort means to me in one image I think is <laughs> very difficult to do and I kept coming back to this specific space and just feel like it really encapsulates an entire chapter of honestly my career and like all the projects we've worked on and hopefully in the future, that idea of comfort will evolve and constantly be changing. So it's, I think it really marks a specific moment in the work that, that the studio has done in the last however many years. Well, so tell me about that. Tell me about why the timing in your mind was right for the, for the book. I wanted to have the opportunity to kind of have this amazing, tangible moment to represent all of the work and the projects that I've worked on over the years that really represent kind of alongside my journey on a personal level of like growing into myself, having confidence and like really putting myself out there and allowing the work that I do to be a manifestation of like my evolution and growth. And also, Rizzoli asked me now, not a couple of years ago, so I didn't really have, didn't really have a choice. <laughs> Well, and, and and tell me about that. So Rizzoli comes to you and tell me, tell me how it happened. They asked me about putting together a book, which was obviously a huge honor and a compliment because I think that all designers will tell you that a book is 
that really pivotal moment, I think, in a career where you actually have this tangible, like, beautiful illustration of a portfolio, but it's so much more than that. It's almost like putting all of the stories and the and the moments in this one area. So when they asked me to do it, it was so almost like cathartic to go back to all of the projects that I worked on and just like re-experiencing them and then to see them in a book format was incredibly exciting. So when they asked me, of course, I said yes. As you were just describing, so often we look back at our past work and we see how we've grown, how we've evolved. And I, and I wonder what jumped out to you as you saw some of these earlier projects or how it made you think about how you've, you, you've grown over that time. Yeah, I mean, I definitely during the process had to take a step back and be as judgment free as possible. Because I think <laughs> as a creative, I'm always looking to evolve and expand and never really stay in the same place. So I think it's while it's important to celebrate the past, I also recognize that where I'm going and in the future is very much a natural evolution. It's unforced and it doesn't feel so intentional. I think it's just something that constantly is a nice reminder that don't ever rest on your laurels. And so when I was going through the book, I definitely had a lot of moments where I was really proud, where I still feel like a lot of the work stands the test of time and I wouldn't have any changes. And then of course, there are other moments where I would do things differently. But I also think it's okay that what was done was done because it was right for the time. So I think it's that that element of loving the past, but also just like, let's put it in a bow and move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, so often when we speak to people about the process of putting together a book, it's a multi-year process mm. often, right? You're, you're, you're spending a lot of money getting all the photo shoots mm. and putting everything together. And it's, a, it's an arduous process. It sounds like for you, it was maybe enjoyable is too strong a word, but you tell me. I mean, it sounds like you really, you're ready to do it again. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> like anything, everything is a team effort. And I will say that my team did such an excellent job in really making all of this come to fruition with the, with Rizzoli's team also. And so I was really able to focus strictly on the creative and the storytelling, which is something that I very much do enjoy. And it was just a new outlet to focus my creativity in something that had a deadline. So I enjoy, I love a deadline and I love the challenge. And I found with the book, I was very fortunate that along the way, I've really spent a lot of time photographing after installation. So I had a lot of work that was already previously photographed, which saved so much time. And I'm so like grateful that I did do that and, and invested in really capturing in the moment of the installation instead of a few years later. So that, that was a really nice part of the process is it, it didn't feel so arduous to like have to re-travel and do everything from scratch. So it, it, it feels like a lot of your, a lot of your clients are 
creative types, yes, artists and musicians and, and celebrities of various sorts, but but also fa- fairly young people often mm. that you're that you're working with, yes? Totally. Yeah, I think most of the clients that I work with do tend to be on the younger side. And I think what's really interesting is that they're either entrepreneurs or entertainers. And so it's a very specific type of clientele that I seem to have attracted over the years. But it's actually something that I very much enjoy being around that type of energy because it's exciting to kind of see how other people work as well. And that there also is this mutual respect for the creative process. But also like, because I seem to be a lot younger than a lot of my peers, especially when I started, it's definitely a an interesting dynamic because I think what I love about older people in general, even friendships, is that you do learn a lot of not just wisdom, but also just like there are I, people have I've worked with who have lived in more houses and worked on more houses than I probably have, like even in my career, like someone who is mm-hmm. on their 10th house, who is who is older. It's interesting to see how that has evolved too from the designer client relationship and that both the designer and the client really do learn from each other. I asked the question in part because the industry seems to be struggling to figure out what this generation that you're speaking to and working with really wants Mm. and how they think about luxury Mm. and how they think about how they they want to live and i wonder what you've what you've learned through this process about that i mean it's a really good question because the first thing that comes to mind is that i think that a lot of people are very intentional about their homes being a safe place to recharge and really support their mental and physical health. Like I do think it's Mm. a a very intentional part of the design process for me at least. And I find that because all of my clients are constantly working and performing, entertaining and putting themselves out in the world, they really are looking to, to come back to a home that really supports that type of living. I think that the idea of design as being a service provider and what that has looked like in the past has definitely shifted in my experience that I think that a lot of people nowadays and younger people are really looking towards their designer as truly a thought partner and a co-creator where they really are hiring someone based on their aesthetic direction and past work but also it's all about the relationship and it's so personal and intimate and a lot of my clients like we get on on a personal level beyond just doing the project and i think they're looking for that too it's like a nice outlet for them to not just have all their focus beyond their work but this is a new creative outlet that not being micromanaged but just being part of the conversation they enjoy and i love the relationships I have with my clients because it's really based on the work that you put into it. Do you know what I mean? Like I think Mm. I've attracted those types of clients because I know what doesn't work and how I'm not going to be able to do the best work if I'm constantly in this very like rigid, structured relationship. It's it's very difficult to, to get the best. Interesting. And and when you when you approach some of your clients who in in some cases are household names and say you're working on a book, 
What is that conversation like? And do people usually not want to be referred to in the in the book? Or how do you how do you manage that? So I think across the board, I just made the decision not to mention any names because I wanted the work to speak for itself. And mm. I, I, as much as my clients and a lot of people I've worked with have helped me build my career throughout the years and has been has been really good exposure, I really wanted the book to feel like from me and personal and really mm. just about the work and not necessarily the specific person who lived there. And I'll say that every single one of my clients that I let that I told that we were doing a book was beyond supportive. And you couldn't ask for more than that, honestly. Well, that's great because I, I know sometimes that's challenging. And as you say, it sounds like wisely you made the decision not to include anybody's name or talk about any of the projects specifically. Now, one of the projects that's in this book is now around the world, literally on the first ever global cover mm. of Architectural <laughs> Digest, right? So it is sweeping the world. It's on the cover of AD Germany and AD Spain and and of, and of course, Architectural Digest here in the US. And it's a spectacular project that, of course, you did for John Legend and, and Chrissy Teigen. And it's everywhere you look. It's all over Instagram. It's all over uh, and 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 the video that they made welcoming AD into their home, half of it is all about you. It's like, oh well, Jake did this, and we're we're so thankful to Jake for that. So I mean, it's uh, it, it's it's an amazing moment for you, I'm sure. Yeah, it's been really, really special. I think what I what I've loved about the whole experience is that every single moment since the time we started working together has just been pure joy. Like they are the loveliest, kindest, most gracious people who have trusted me and my team, have let, like welcomed us into their home countless times and just been so incredibly warm. So for them to give me that type of love was honestly like the best <laughs> feeling because that's why you do it. I don't do it necessarily just for the accolades, but I want people to be so happy in their homes. And the fact that they have a good experience with me and my team, like that's all you can ask for. Like it's so much more important than the design. It's all about the experience and that people have an enjoyable experience during during this process. So then to see it on the cover of Architectural Digest and Amy Astley asked me to for us to be the first global cover, I mean, it's it's a true pinchy moment of I don't know how I got here, but <laughs> I I'm very thankful and it's very humbling because it is behind the scenes. I think a lot of people just see on Instagram or online of all the accolades, but behind closed doors, the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that has gone into every single thing that we've done is it's nice to know that the effort and the work like pays off. Well, so tell us about some of the blood, sweat, and tears, mm. because of course that's th that's the reality. And mm. and I'm sure this project was going on for. I mean, you tell me for how long it was going on. We actually did this specific project fairly fast. I think total it was like just over a year and a half because, again, like we had such synergy working together. So we would design, we would have approvals, and we would do it. So it was a very like this mm. is the thing that I say all the time. This is the best 
easiest job in the world if everyone is on the same page. Like, it's not difficult. Like, it is meant to be fun, enjoyable, exciting. And it can be that way if <laughs> we're all on the same page and we really were. So it got done. Everyone was happy. And when I talk about blood, sweat and tears, I think what gets forgotten a lot of the times is that while we're doing these individual projects, like any design firm will tell you, you're also running a business. You're keeping a team happy. You're expanding your entire organization and structure while also providing an incredible service to, to clients. So one without the other doesn't exist. So I think all behind the scenes is this constant learning curve and expansion of what building a business is and juggling a million things at the same time while also trying to be a healthy, balanced human being, <laughs> which is impossible, by the way. One of the things that you just said was keeping a team happy. And it seems that is a greater challenge today than ever <laughs> before. Yes, yes. For a host for a host of reasons, yes? Beyond. I think that the the hardest part of the job is that, for me anyway, is I truly believe that I think that a work environment should be somewhere that you really want to go and spend your time and it like feeds and gives you energy. And the reason why most people choose to go into the design world is because they want and crave that type of connectivity and, and community and creativity. So without any of those things, what's the point? Do you know what I mean? So making mm. an environment that fosters that is a is a is a constant work in progress and it can be really hard sometimes because you've got a bottom line to meet you have deliverables but also like i'm an empathetic person so i understand and i've been a project manager i've been an intern i've done all these things over the years so i know how hard it can be and so it's an important balance to make sure that everyone around you is taken care of but also able to do the best work that they can, given all of the tools. So that, that all has to happen while also doing in front of the scene stuff with clients. So, and not to mention, I have a whole nother business and we've done three collaborations in all the other things. And so <laughs> my brain and energy has to sustain all of those things, which it struggles. Do you know what I mean? Like if I'm honest, and I tell this to everyone, it's like, it does. It's a trade-off and you can suffer physically when you do too much. So I'm now in the process of editing, meditating, chilling, getting recentered, and just focusing on the things that I really want to do. And, and are you thinking, because of course, I mean, as you just suggested, we didn't even talk about Crate and Barrel and this furniture collection, and, and we're going to get to the expert in a minute and, and talk about that. But as you just suggested, are you thinking, oh my goodness, I, I do need to peel something off or I do need to step back from something? Yes. I think what's so amazing about the body is that it is a warning sign of change. Like for me, I have really experienced burnout like most people do and and had and had those challenges and then you look at it and you're like you know what there ha something has to give and so for me it's now the focus of really leaning into the things that I really enjoy that I love to do 
And that really allowed me to meet my goals. So do you know who gave me the best advice is Leanne Ford said this to me. She said, you have to be able to say no to the good to do the great. And I just think it's like the best advice because even when you're in the face of a good opportunity that you think, oh my God, how could I pass this up? You have to, because then if you say yes to everything, then when that really amazing thing that makes you so excited and gives you energy comes along, you don't have the bandwidth to do it. So I'm definitely in that phase right now. When you started working on the on the project that has now made the the global cover of AD, were you thinking about that all along? Were you thinking, oh, if this project turns out the way I think it could, mm -hmm. we should we should really submit it to AD, and and Amy's going to love it, and and off it goes, or 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 was that a gradual process? And and tell me how it all came about. Yeah, I mean, I it's definitely always in the back of my mind whenever doing a project is that it's what the exciting part of any project is, it's not just the homeowner that can enjoy it, but it really is an opportunity to like share the work that we've done. So of course, like that's always for any designer really at the back of their mind. And, and originally it was a discussion of being on the cover, but then later the conversation of the global cover came up, which honestly was not on my radar. I didn't even know it was an option because I had never heard of, of them doing that before. And so just having that type of exposure, but also a opportunity to showcase the house based on kind of the audience in each country it was just very interesting to see how all of the different countries like almost re-edited the story. Mm. So when you look at Italy, they don't show John and Chrissy on the cover. Like, right. it's just interesting how the markets are so different. So that was great. I mean, I still hasn't sunk in because it really was a week ago. And so I haven't even had, I, I don't even have all of the copies still. I'm waiting to get those. And it's just one of those moments that someone like me, who is literally from the middle of nowhere in England, like big picture, like to be in that magazine and have that type of opportunity, like, I'd never take that for granted because one day years ago, I couldn't have even dreamt that that was even an option. So it's, it's, a, it's a very crazy moment, I have to say. It was also interesting because the project is not a typical project that I, we normally work on. Like a lot of the houses we work on are either older homes, slightly more traditional, a little darker. And this was a nice challenge and something fun to showcase like the range that we really can work with anyone and in any house. And I, I loved that opportunity to, to kind of just dip our toe into something different. When people are coming to you and wanting to work with you, what do they seem to have in their mind mm. about the kind of work right. that you do, right? Or what it's going to be like? Well, it's interesting because I was thinking about this, that all of our clients have very different personal styles. And I think what they all have in common when they come to us is that they want something that's incredibly warm and livable. And that version of that is what I think people feel when they see the work that we do, but it might not necessarily be so on the nose of a specific aesthetic versus a feeling for them. And so that there's a whole spectrum of traditional all the way to contemporary and everyone is slightly further along that like continuum and there's a little bit mm. of every part of 
people that just everyone wants that mix but it's how much of the mix on each end of the spectrum that people really want and that's what I love is like I have some clients that are obsessed with print and color and contemporary and then I have some clients that don't like any color and they want all vintage so it's all it's interesting how how everyone that we have especially the I would say the new work that I haven't shown yet in the last year is very is different to what we've done in the past like it is slightly more refined a little more on the traditional side and also more experimental so I think again it's it's the evolution and everyone that comes to us just wants warm they want to sit on the sofa and be comfortable (laughs) and I'm here for that (laughs) (laughs) well and 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 is that I mean if you had to sum up what what people imagine they're going to be getting from you I mean this the book is called redefining comfort and and is it is it that they they want you to to make them comfortable whatever that means to them the reason why I came up with that title is because it is a new definition of how to live in a beautiful space that you still want to really like get cozy and comfortable and feel like your house is a home. And I think that that's what people want. They want to get home, jump on the sofa, have the kids jump up and down, not worry about every little spill. And that's what we create spaces to live in. These aren't just pretty pictures that look perfect like every single one of the projects that I've ever worked on and our whole team has worked on I still go back to them and love that when you see them in person they have this whole other layer to them of texture and livability that you can't capture on camera and so what's great is a lot of our clients have been to other clients homes which is why it's all word of mouth. So when they've been in a space that we've worked on that they love, it's such a shortcut to the whole conversation when we start working together because there's an element of trust there that I do think is key to a successful like end result for sure. So you mentioned earlier that you are a, a business person and one of your businesses is the expert Yes. And and there's been a lot going on there. Maybe maybe catches up. I understand that a lot of the trade is coming and wanting to take advantage of of the showroom side of the business. Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, well, firstly, it's crazy because I think we spoke about the expert right at the beginning with you. So it's it's definitely evolved since (laughs) our first conversation. And we know that there have been people who are questioning it and they're confused and they're like, how are we going to work with the trade? And actually, it's been so interesting because the trade have been loving working with our platform because we just make it easy. And not every single designer in the world has access to the same things that some designers do in major cities so it's really like we're opening up the doors for the homeowner it's the same thing with the designers and giving them the resources and companies that they also might not have heard of and exposing smaller boutique companies and giving them a platform so it's all it's this big kind of family i guess from the end user the designer and the and the brand that we showcase so everyone it's like a win-win scenario for mm. everyone and so the trade program has really been taking off and it's just a great opportunity for people to to have that access 
and 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 relationship with the expert team, which hopefully helps everyone just do their job a lot easier than they had in the past. Well, and were there were there some companies that might have been on the fence when you first rolled this out that now have seen the success of it and are coming along? Or what yeah, are you finding? Yeah, I think I do think at the beginning, because after the success of the video consultations took off, it definitely allowed us to build our trust and credibility for a lot of brands. And I think what's been nice is like through my relationships and through the experts' relationships in before even starting the showroom, just ordering product for customers who had booked the one-on-one consultations. They had seen the the growth potential and the exposure that they could reach when they some of these companies didn't even have e-commerce. So it's really been a good opportunity for them. And I think it's also helped us show what can be done when you go on the platform. Like it really helps drive traffic and exposure. There's something for everyone and there's all there's enough for everyone to be successful. And I love to see designers kind of use this as an opportunity to build their businesses. Like that's really what it is, is a tool for 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 people to expand their offering in a way that feels like they can actually grow their company without putting an enormous amount of money because trust me, I know how expensive it is to <laughs> to build out a business. So hopefully the expert like gives people that opportunity to just expand. Okay. Now, before we wrap up this conversation, Jake, another thing that is different from when you and I have spoken in the past is that today you are sitting in front of a pretty professional looking microphone. <laughs> and I... I can only assume that this microphone is uh, is being put to use for uh, for other purposes than just for speaking with me here today. So, uh, what you been up to with that uh, fancy microphone of yours, Jake? What are your, what are your plans here? I see what you're doing, and I'm <laughs> I, get, I get it. We are at the expert starting a podcast, which honestly, I get it. Everyone has a podcast. We all have something to say, but, mm. and we're not coming for you, Dennis. I promise you, I'm not, okay. I, I, could okay. I, could, I, mean I could never do what you do. Let me tell you, this is like a little piece of what we're doing. And I, and mm. I am really excited about the podcast because I think a huge part of the expert has always been to open up the gates and like, really let people in and just give design this easy, open approach to anyone and everyone who aren't even in the design community and really just expanding everything about design in ways that that feel very inviting and easy. And we have great conversations with editors of magazines, designers, brands, entrepreneurs, like all different types of people. And I think that my goal with this is again mm. sharing the wisdom of how people not just the the specifics in the design field but how these people think and how they are able to support their businesses and everything they do in the day because i think we talk so much about accomplishments and not so much about the nitty-gritty things behind the scenes and what it takes for some of these experts to to get to where they're going and all the things that you might not see. In closing, Jake, with with all of the exciting things that are going on for you that we've talked about, 
I wonder, especially with the, I mean, people just around the world going to be seeing this project in AD and you were already so well known, but you're about to become even more well known. I wonder when you think about what the most, at the moment, perhaps even unimaginable opportunity that could present itself to you, what would you love to see come out of this? What, what chance would you love to be given next to take in your, in your work, in your career? I think that I, I don't see anything really as like necessarily a means to an end. So I don't have like, of course, I would love to do a hotel on a design level and those types of things. But I think big picture, my, my dream is that I'm able to, any attention that I, that I get through the work using that for good. And like being, like I said, being someone that is able to inspire others through the lens of like these opportunities where which is expanding visibility to me and the our like studio and company that's the goal like that's really the big goal for me it's not just about doing another project or another collaboration but it's it's about having a platform that i can say something that has meaning and that that truly doesn't just relate to just design in, in a small confined area. So obviously the design is a vehicle for all of this. Right. And that's yes. been my vehicle, but it's like, it that's my goal. Like the goal is that. It's like, how do you help people? How do you inspire people? Empower them and make them feel like they can do it from nothing. Like that's, if if that's where I end up, however it is through a hotel, a book, a this or that, it's, it doesn't matter. That's that's the message and, and that's what I believe in and stand behind and that's what I'm aiming for. Okay, well, I'm thrilled to get to speak with you and I, and I couldn't be more excited for everything that's happening. Well, for you. thank you as always. Honestly, it's such a treat getting to, to speak to you and thanks for always being such a cheerleader. Okay, we're getting to the end of the show here, but before we go, we'd like to take a second to highlight anything going on in the industry that might have caught our eye. Fred? Sure, well, Sheila Bridges has caught my eye. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, but you know, we had her uh, on the, the podcast a few years ago, and I remember the, the recording session very well, and she, you know, she had such this you know, storied career. She was one of the first you know, high-end designers to be on TV, but she felt a little bit, I, I don't know, her mood was a little low. She felt a little bit like, oh, you know, I don't know, things shouldn't things be farther along? But over the past few years, I mean, she did the vice president's residence in D.C. and, you know, her twelve uh, Harlem twelve wallpapers everywhere. It was she even posted this picture on Instagram of uh, LeBron James wearing a bucket hat with a, her. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, imagine, yes. you know, uh, Scalamandra must be <laughs> drooling with envy. They'd love to have him wear a, a leaping zebra's hat. Um, and she's got collections with William Sonoma and Lake Crusade coming out. So I don't know. I feel like Sheila Bridges is, you know, her, her talent has always been there. And I feel like she's really had a renaissance over the past few years. And it's uh, it's, it's uh, a, a great reminder that careers are long, they ebb and flow, and, and she's uh, just been doing amazing. So it's uh, it was great to. She also got named to this sort of Forbes uh, list of really influential people. So, you know, I, I say uh, 
Cheers, bravo, and applause to Sheila Bridges. <laughs> no, I completely agree. And it's been so fun to see Harlem Twal be on just a whole host of products over the past few years. And it seems like that's doing really well for her. So I'm excited about that. I wanted to draw people's attention to an article that they might have missed. Last week, our guest was Rhonda Kaysen, the real estate reporter for The New York Times. We were talking about Modern Farmhouse. She's got a new piece out, which is all about feeling mortgage rate envy yes. and about... Uh, <laughs> about the cocktail party conversation of so uh, so how low is your mortgage rate and it seems like uh, it is a it is a hot topic a lot of people who have below 3% mortgages uh, either they like to boast about it and humble brag about it or they don't like to talk about it at all and really they don't want to let on but it is uh, it is a sign of the times yeah. that, uh, that it used to be your golf handicap now it's your now it's your mortgage exactly rate. Yeah. yes but uh, I think people with below 3% mortgage rates are suddenly the, uh, the envy of the room. All right, that's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news in the design industry, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This episode was produced by Fred Nikolaus and Lizzie Reisinger and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday.